I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. Welcome back. So we want to talk, I think we want to extend the ketamine conversation from last episode and let's talk about excited delirium. So in this episode, I think we should really identify who that patient population is. You know, what, what exactly is excited delirium, how it can actually kill the patient and break down that pathophysiology and what we can do to kind of disrupt that cycle. What, how, how can we use ketamine to disrupt that lethal spiral of pathophysiology? I, I think the delineation between a, just a combative patient, we're not talking about a patient who is just a little combative, you know, they're, or they're just a little agitated. We're talking about patients who are literally lethal. They are dangerous to themselves. They are a danger to everybody around them. And every law enforcement officer on scene is about to tase them or they already have. And they just giggled at it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's nothing. You know, the interesting thing is as people are listening to this too, you know, this is not a big city issue. This is not a, this is a across the board in EMS. If you do this long enough, you are going to run into these types of patients. These are not just patients that occur in a certain area of the country uh, or in a certain population. These patients are going to be anywhere and they are extremely dangerous. Like you said, this is not just, you know, someone that took something and they're, you know, they're just hyped, hopped up on, on something. Their heart rate's high. They're excited. They've got a lot of energy. This is not that type of patient. These are the types of patients that, they they just absolutely feel no pain. And in fact, that's, uh, you know, you, you hear these stories of, um, you know, these superhuman strengths of people being able to lift cars and stuff with the, you know, adrenaline and and things like that. And, and really what limits everyone is pain. So it's not so much strength, but it's pain. Uh, so, you know, a couple examples, probably one that was just the absolute craziest was, uh, I had a patient one time, this was actually when I was in Texas, and uh, he had uh, excited delirium, not even sure what he was was taking, but I remember getting there, he was in the bathroom, and there were six police officers there, and it was all they could do to hold this guy down and get him out of there. This guy, to stay, he did not want to go, and he reached his hand into the toilet, down the uh, drain as far as he could. And he literally with one arm, one arm lifted the entire toilet off the floor Jeez! and they finally got him. And as they were getting him out, he bit the door. And as he bit the door, he left a couple teeth behind and took a chunk out of the door. Wow. And that was my first experience. And when I, I, because I was a fairly new uh, young paramedic, I didn't understand it. I did not understand what gave you that strength and that ability. And a lot of it is because he take away the pain. There's been all sorts of stories of people being shot and it doesn't phase them. Um, these are patients not only are a danger to themselves, but they're a danger to us. Absolutely. And this is one of those things in a, in a scene survey you will not be able to restrain these people with one or two people. And I don't care how big they are. This is going to be a, you know, a small, uh, a petite woman 
and you will not be able to to restrain her. And I know as people listen to this, probably flooded with memories back over the years. Oh, yeah. Um, when a lot of these times you don't realize you're in the situation until it's hit you. And right. that's, you know, that's the corny thing about the National Registry test, PSI, seen safe. You know, a lot of times you're in it. That's a, you don't it's even an ongoing it. assessment. And um, if you get caught in the back of an ambulance with one of these um, and and it's you going to town, you better pull over and get out because you're about to get hurt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because not only is not only do they not feel pain, their entire sympathetic nervous system is just jacked. I mean, they are, they're incredibly anxious. They're angry. They, their heart's beating through their chest. They're, I mean, I can't, I can't fathom what that would feel like, but also they have, they have the patho behind is that they have dysregulated dopamine transporters. So they're not thinking clearly. Yeah. That's a good point because I think people are thinking, Oh, now we're in a battle. It's you against us and you're trying to hurt us. So I hate you, you know, in a lot of, these aren't, these aren't rational thoughts that they're having of, Oh, I'm you're you know, you're, a paramedic, you're an EMT, you're a police officer, you're a firefighter, you're a figure of authority. I am going to hurt you yeah. because I do not like you. No, they're they're, you know, it's it's almost a it's such an unfortunate situation, and we have to treat these patients very carefully, very specifically. And if we do not understand then what's going on, we're going to allow them to hurt themselves and we may allow them to hurt us. Absolutely. And the last thing that we need to do, and man, this has, this has been plastered all throughout the news over the past five or 10 years. I mean, you, for example, you get a guy that, you know, takes some bath salts and then what do you do? You have five to 10 people pile on top of him to where he can't breathe anymore. And then he dies. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the last thing we need to do. You know, again, like you said, judgment aside, we need to help these people. And that's what essentially ketamine does in this situation. It disrupts that chain to where those thoughts that they're having. I mean, literally, it's it's just it's kind of like unplugging a computer monitor. Computer's still running, but you don't see what's going on. Yeah. So where did that where did that come about? Um, you know, I know we see also with, uh, you know, some PTSD. We know that this is a great place where ketamine worked. Uh, and, you know, with PTSD, that is just, again, something that we underappreciate. We give too much judgment. We give too much misunderstanding. Um, people think that it's overdiagnosed you know, maybe it is. I, I, I'm not going to be the one to say that. However, you know, so we've gone to extremes of, I have PTSD, which means I have to take my emotional support duck on the plane <laughs> or peacock or mm -hmm. boa constrictor or something. Yeah. It's like, okay, that really probably goes to the extreme. And then what it does is it completely takes away from the patients that are truly Absolutely. having these issues. And then yes. we end up judging. And a lot of it is because we were, we don't understand what they went through. So then we start making uh, passing judgment and then change our treatment based on that. Maybe it's, well, this patient doesn't, this person doesn't deserve a certain level or they deserve everything that they're about to get. And we withhold the correct treatment because mm. we are not understanding and we think that they have motives that they really don't have. Yeah. So essentially it just boils down to do no harm and treat our patients well. 
regardless of it, regardless of if they're trying to bite your face off or not, <laughs> just do the right thing. So take us through this. I mean, we've got these people um, that are not thinking correctly. They're certainly not, um, they're not consenting really to treatment in, through the typical, okay, we're going to lay here. Okay. We're going to, we're going to start an IV on you and this is how we're going to do it. Okay. Big stick, hold really still, get this thing taped down. Okay. Now we're going to give you some medic medicine. These patients obviously aren't going through that. So how are we changing the way that we treat these patients. So definitely first off, if if there is a possibility of getting some type of bystander history, uh, for sure, if there's a family member around, because again, we need to vet the patient on, is this a psychiatric emergency? Or again, did they take bath salts? Did they take a ton of meth? Is this a chemically induced problem? Or again, is this schizophrenia? I can think back to whenever I was working for a metro ambulance service in Atlanta. I mean, that's a highly dense population of schizophrenic patients. And unfortunately, uh, that was that was the case a lot of the times. However, whenever you paint the picture of a patient who is running around naked because they have elevated thermodynamics, so whatever drug they took, whatever club drug they took to where their body temperature is upwards of 103 degrees, I mean, they're cooking. I mean, they're 100% cooking. So they're running around naked, clothes are off. You have a catecholamine surge to where their epi is making, again, their, their adrenal glands are pumping out epi, norepi. So you're getting increased blood pressure, increased heart rate. So the agitation and anxiety coming from that alone. <laughs> and then what's going on metabolically? So metabolically is, is very interesting. Um, and unfortunately, with this, essentially think about it as a patient who just can't stop moving. Metabolic demand is increased everywhere. So again, if you, if your body is just building up lactic acid from not sleeping for the past two days and your body temperature is up to 103 and you've done nothing but walk around on the streets and break stuff and just move then you're building up lactic acid throughout your bloodstream, which essentially is going to break down your skeletal muscle. So you have myoglobin being released out into your bloodstream as well as potassium, both of which are absolutely terrible for your kidneys. 100% can wreck your the renal system and cause arrhythmias. Yeah, and so we can have uh, things like rhabdo um, and people die from that. I mean, absolutely. that's going to shock, your kidneys shut down. And so... What do you think about, what is the instance of, uh, or how do we, we go about differentiating a person with excited delirium versus a long history of mental illness like schizophrenia or, you know, the, the hundreds of others that are out there that maybe mentally, uh, or cognitively, this is what's going on, but with excited delirium, we can possibly say, well, it's a, it's a mental health issue without appreciating all of the pathophysiology that's going on metabolically, respiratory wise, all of that. How do we differentiate between the two? So definitely if, if there is somebody there to help us with a history, that's, that's number one pill bottles, obviously scanning, like you were saying, complete and total scene awareness at this point, scanning the scene for any type of prescription medications. Um, are they irregular? Are they quote unquote, you know, a frequent customer of the EMS service, you know, 
have have you been called out here before for similar situations, obviously, but um, the ability for them to still speak coherently versus the ability they're not speaking at all, just gnashing at teeth, like you were saying, biting, um, or if they're just saying complete nonsense, nonsensible words, just random phrases. Yeah, so these are not patients that are easily managed. I mean, we talk about the difference between the different kind of of health healthcare professionals and the level that you need to be at. This is this is an assessment tool that is hugely important and one of those, you know, as we as we teach students, one of the things is resources that you have to look at. These are not patients that you should be that you should even try to restrain yourself because you're just going to, you know, you're just going to get hurt. 100%. 100%. And like you said earlier, it could be a tiny 100 to 150 pound adult. And they're, I mean, you're, you're, you're in for a ride. Oh yeah. Because another part of that assessment, they're not feeling any pain. They may be pacing back and forth, saying things under their breath, just mumbling random words and just again, taking their clothes off because of the increased thermodynamics and then superhuman strength, punching through walls, punching through doors, not feeling the pain from that. I mean, all of that, we're talking about an extreme situation here. So take us through what are, what are some of the things either you've done in your career or you've heard of others. Let's talk about how do we manage this patient. So we arrive on scene. Um, we have this patient uh, in either in front of us or we have, uh, you know, hopefully law enforcement there and they have to their best ability restrain these patients. It's now time for us to go actually put our hands on them, assess them, figure out what we're going to do. Take us through what are some of your um, some of your advice on how we actually manage this patient even before we get to ketamine or some other things that we can do? What are just some of the things we need to watch out for and how do we actually manage this patient? So one of the most important things, and a lot of people are going to roll their eyes and laugh, but man, I'm just telling you, you would hate to give ketamine to a patient who just needed some D50. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> so assessing a blood glucose level just bar none, so incredibly important, making sure obviously that the airway breathing and circulation are good. But I mean, assess that blood sugar, because if that's the issue and you just snowed them with ketamine and transport them and then they go into a rest and route and it's a blood sugar problem, you just killed that patient. And if you have not seen a patient that looks like excited delirium from hypoglycemia, you have not been doing this long enough. Absolutely. You will come across that that patient. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then again, just very careful patient positioning. Just, you know, you don't want to put this patient prone and then put, you know, again, laying on top of them or restraining them to the point that you're going to cause an injury to the patient. So with something, uh, patients like this, these are very difficult patients to assess and try to figure out uh, the best form of treatment. What do you think about uh, the difference between standing orders and protocols versus direct medical control? How do you feel about uh, the difference between those two in these types of situations? I think as long as the proper vetting has been done and as long as the protocol is pretty specific on what that vetting is, I feel like you can the, the paramedics should be able to have a pretty good amount of judgment. I feel like they should have the freedom of having that judgment and making that clinical decision. And before you even, if you're, if you have a shadow of a doubt and you do call medical direction, well, you better have again, a blood sugar yeah. and 
at least have attempted to find some type of history, you know, pat the patient down, trying to find any type of evidence of, of drug use, you know, look for look for signs of injection on their on their ACs or in their any anywhere where they could have been, you know, IV drug use, anything like that. Um, scanning the patient pretty thoroughly before uh, before calling for medical direction in that situation. Yeah, I would think we've, uh, over the years, I think most police departments probably have gotten away from hog tying yeah. um, patients we've, we've, uh, seen in our area. Um, there was a, there were a couple cases in Atlanta. I know when I was, when I was working there where, uh, police would hog tie a patient like this, put him in the back of the police car, uh, you know, for, for appropriate safety reasons, respiratory effort gets increased, not able to breathe well. And when you're hogtied, so we, you know, we got to be good advocates for these patients too. And then we say, well, it is a safety concern, but we don't need to just completely disregard the patient, especially, but before, well, when we say before ketamine, what were our, you know, what were our Mm. options? Oh man, we had a B-52 bomber. (laughs) Yeah, that's, (laughs) you know, and, and really to, to hog tie him and tie him to the stretcher and have police ride in with you. And, you know, that was about the best you can do and good luck, you know, having police officers leave their cars to ride in with you. I've had them handcuff them to the stretcher and say, I'll follow you in. Like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But then another time I had a police officer ride in and he had, uh, the taser out and had the, uh, red dot on the guy's chest the whole time. And I'm thinking, I hope we don't hit a pothole at the wrong time. And <laughs> your, your wrist move about an inch while you're pulling the trigger. Cause I'm just never going to sit behind never you. Never been tased, but I kind of have to go to the bathroom right now. And I've heard stories and, and don't, don't want to be embarrassing. Don't want to try it today. Huh? <laughs> you know, so, okay. So what, Remind us of the dosing for ketamine in this type of situation. So in this situation, if for whatever reason you have an IV, which again, highly unlikely, if the patient is combative, superhuman strong, um, I mean, just, just fighting you and fighting you and fighting you, an IV is not realistic in this situation. In fact, I'm just going to go out and say it's unsafe. It is. I mean, I for, agree. for you to try to get an IV on this patient, you're you're putting yourself, your partner, the police officers who are helping you. I mean, you're putting everybody at risk. Intramuscular injection is the way to go. But if for whatever reason you have an IV, we're looking at one to two milligrams per kilogram up to a max of 200 milligrams. And if you have, if you have the appropriate concentrations of ketamine, then intramuscular route is definitely the way to go. And you can go two to four milligrams per kilogram up to 400 milligram max. And I have seen some protocols that say 500 milligram max. So, I mean, that's, that's just a, you know, a widely accepted range, four to 500, but typically it's around 400 milligrams. And is it appropriate to start at a low, lower dose and give more as it's needed or is it best to try to get the appropriate dose first? That's a great question. Uh, I've never really, I've for excited delirium, the, the least that I've ever given was around, it was appropriate for the weight base, but it was still around 300 milligrams. So difficult to titrate intramuscular medications. And that does bring up the point though, that there are some, there are still some services out there. There are some services in our region that do not have 
they don't they don't have ketamine they don't have anything for antipsychotic whatsoever they're just supposed to just benzo them up <laughs> i mean that's not that's not going to work no no and if uh you know even if you're doing things like conscious sedation and you're giving versed if a patient does not want to be sedated, you will not be able to give them enough versed to get them sedated unless you just go to ridiculous, ridiculous amounts and you're given, you know, 15, 20 milligrams of versed. But if you don't want to be sedated, you can you can keep yourself awake with that much yeah. uh, benzo in you. Well, let's talk about why that's bad. I mean, so at this point, you're, you're taking a patient who is dangerously combative, physically strong to the point that it's taking three and four, you know, adults to hold them down and you give them Versed. Well, they're still anxious. They're still having those, you know, the, the cognition problems and their thermodynamics are still through the roof, but now they're just kind of drunk. They're not stopping. They're not going to stop. So while your safety may be improved, the patient situation has not improved at all. Yeah, that's a good point. That's Those, a good point. Yeah, that's that spiral of pathophysiology is still occurring. Whereas if you utilize something along the lines of ketamine and you block those NMDA receptors, the patient spiral, I mean, it, it's still going to continue. They're still very acidic. Their bloodstream is still very acidic. However, you've interrupted that chain. So they, you know, hopefully they will no longer have that situation going on. Something to keep in mind too, though, is that if you are administering ketamine during excited delirium, we definitely want to make sure that we maintain that. And a lot That's of the a protocols, a lot of the research supports the use of two to two and a half milligrams of Versed or midazolam on top of ketamine. A um, couple of reasons. First off, it kind of helps maintain that sedation. And as far as benzos go, I mean, Versed is relatively safe. It's very short acting. Uh, the half-life is nowhere near as long as either Valium or Ativan. And also it helps prevent an emergence reaction. So can you imagine somebody with excited delirium going through an emergence reaction? Oh, man. So we definitely want to, uh, again, the appropriate dose. You don't want to give them too much. And you want to try to prevent that as much as possible by putting Versed on top of it. So what is, we're talking about half-life, what is, you know, we've got uh, some people in our area here, you know, that might have a 45 minute or an hour uh, transport time. Uh, is there any danger in that wearing off during that time and they have to redose? So absolutely. Yeah. And and they can, again, redose with more, uh, with more Versed at that point or more Benzo at that point. Good point. Which brings to the point. If a department's only option is Versed, let's say that you have an excited delirium patient, you have a 20 or 30 minute transport time, and all you have is Versed. That's that's a pretty short acting benzo. Yeah. So you're you're putting yourself in danger, you're putting your patient uh in harm's way. And uh, you know, I think this is just one of those things that we really need to look at. And, you know, maybe we need more evidence, maybe we need more more studies, maybe we need uh, you know, some pre-hospital type stuff. Maybe we need to get people more involved that are experts in excited delirium. You know, if you bring this patient to the emergency department, you know, you're going to, you're going to treat this patient for the emergency side, and then you're going to get, um, you know, mental health involved. You're going to get these other resources because, you know, this is a, this is a community health issue. This isn't just, 
you know, this type, this one time that this is going to happen. So, uh, you know, I think we need to take all of that into account and we need to study it a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that two things, two goals potentially for pre-hospital providers. One, let's develop a pathway to vet. Is this a psychotic problem? Is this psychosis or is this chemically induced? Is is this true excited delirium from something that ketamine needs to interrupt or is this, you know, schizophrenia? I would also like to see some data that either supports or disproves that if if it is a psychogenic problem, you need to use an antipsychotic such as Haldol or Geodon. And if it's not, if it is chemically induced, then sure, use ketamine. Um, there, there's there's a lot of debate going back and forth with that. Yeah, I think uh, we we just we just got to look at this more. This is a uh, this is an exciting time, I think, because pun intended. You know, the <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I think we do need to study this a little bit more because we're seeing EMS being pushed more and more uh, on the forefront of some of this stuff. And, you know, police officers deal with these types of patients. There's there's frustration there. There's things that they need to do to secure a scene. But we need to work a little bit more with them and have a little bit more understanding of our community. And maybe we can identify where there's pockets of uh, population that may be more at risk for this, or that when we go to these places, we can have a higher uh, index of suspicion or preparation about these things and even debrief them with, with uh, the police department. You know, did we do the right thing? Did we end up hurting this patient because we were frustrated with uh, what they were doing? Now, sometimes, yeah, you just got to go to for safety issues. I mean, that's why police officers carry guns because at some point, Things are escalated because of safety reasons uh, to the highest level. But I think we need to uh, look at these afterwards and figure out, did we do the right thing? Could, it, could we have done anything different? Could we have done it better? Could we have used ketamine, not used ketamine, got ketamine there faster, different route, uh, all these type um, situations. And also, were there any adverse effects of that ketamine use? You know, did did we actually have to support ventilations following the administration? Absolutely. And that plays right into a lot of things that uh, we've been talking about recently is this patient is not an EMS patient. They're not an ER patient. They're not an inpatient. They are a patient in a system of care. And we as EMS have to have these relationships with these hospitals and hospitals. Hospitals have to have relationships with EMS to be able to go back and say, you gave the ketamine here. This is what happened. This is how it affected the treatment in the emergency department and how they, uh, even out of the emergency department, what you did was right. What you did was wrong. Your dose was wrong. Your dose was right. Um, we just gotta, we have to look at this as a system of care. When we do, we're going to get better. If not, we're just going to continue to have these fights of paramedics should not be given ketamine. You've been listening to Medic Class Citizen. If you like what you heard, check out our website at www.medicclasscitizen.com. Also, find us on social media where you can follow, like, subscribe, and share. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and we also have videos on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.